Okay, so we're talking about the uh, parable of the mustard seed. So again, it's that green that kind of becomes this uh, big shrub, nine to twelve feet, right? So, um, so we talked about like not dismissing um, things because they initially seem to be uh, insignificant. You know, so I talked about that example for my for priestly ordination. Uh, but the next point I want to make with regards to the mustard seed is this idea of a uh, patience, endurance, patient endurance. So rather than trying to go for like um, the knockout punch, um, to kind of realize that there's something to said about doing the right thing uh, over a long period of time. And I think it's one of those, those uh, principles which um, um, perhaps is, is, uh, is so subtle that, that it seems hard to apply, but it's important to kind of grasp this, right? So it's not so much to like um, have patient endurance um, to the exclusion of, of creativity. So if you're doing the wrong thing over a long period of time, like that's not good too, right? So it's a matter of kind of like pray into it. So the example that kind of comes to mind, like, you know, I, I think about uh, oftentimes in, in seminary, um, things would be kind of rough, you know? And so I remember one time talking to my spiritual director and saying like all these things that I, I didn't like about being in the seminary. I would just name all these different things. And, you know, they were, they were all made up. But basically, not a fact, I just, I just, I was having a rough time, you know? And my, uh, my kind of like subtle argument was like, okay, because I'm not having a good time and because like I find this uncomfortable, the Lord doesn't want me to be uncomfortable. So therefore, clearly, he's calling me to leave, right? And he, he caught me on that, right? And so it's one of these things, when you hear it out loud, it sounds like pretty obvious, but to remember this in, in life, right? So just because you're in a situation where like this feels uncomfortable, um, that's not reason enough to like leave or make a significant change it's got to be situated in terms of god's call and so the way he framed it to me like it was like okay is god calling you to go from this to that like a specific situation to an alternative specific situation in the alternative if you don't feel that call from a specific this to that by default you're called to kind of stay there even though it's difficult even though it sounds kind of painful the uh, Atlanta mission that we're going to do at uh, St. James um, from March 20th to the 22nd, it's going to be about the, the Beatitudes. And I haven't uh, started working on that yet because it's not, it's not March 19th. So, but uh, basically the Beatitudes, like it's, you know, it's phrased a certain way. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure of heart, whatever. So clearly that, that key word there is, is blessed, you know. And sometimes what you hear um, is that, okay, a way to translate it is, is happy which is a terrible translation, right? Happy are those who are persecuted or righteous of sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, oh, are you really happy? I don't know, right? So happiness implies sort of a certain, uh, you know, emotional euphoria. Or, or at the very least, it says said subjectively, like, okay, I recognize this is pretty cool, and so that's why I'm happy, right? The more appropriate translation is actually blessed, you know? So the church, they own it, right? So blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs the kingdom of heaven, right? So the way to think of it, um, this is the analogy that, that I, I like to use for myself. Imagine you're on a plane. So you bought the ticket, you're on the plane, and you're flying to this amazing destination, wherever it is, say it's Hawaii or something, right? And you're on the plane, but you're going through some turbulence, and it sucks, right? But you are blessed. So here's a situation where like, okay, subjectively, I'm not like you. And I'm happy, not particularly. And I wouldn't even recognize that I'm blessed, but you were blessed all the same. So really important to kind of keep in mind. And then just to think it through, it gives you a certain freedom. So I'm not kind of like pulled this way and that by my love of comfort. It's one of these things. I mean, even going back to the whole, um, the parable of the sower, right? The idea of, of superficiality with regards to our faith. No one likes to think they're a hedonist, but a lot of times we are, right? But what's hedonism? Like, the, hedonism is like the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That's what hedonism is in, in a nutshell. And you like, like to think, again, that you're not a hedonist, but if you think about it, like, how do we tend to evaluate a good day? A good day is when things went according to plan. I, I set good goals because I, have, I don't have malicious intent. I'm a good person, right? I'm trying to feed my family and trying to, like, whatever, survive in this big, bad world. And so I look back on my day, and insofar as my little goals and expectations were fulfilled, it was a good day. Insofar as I had a maximum amount of pleasure and minimum amount of pain, awesome day, right? But to kind of like reevaluate things. So maybe in the light of everything we're talking about here, maybe you look back on your day, 
And your day didn't go according to plan. And maybe your day was painful. And maybe your day involved a lot of inconvenience. And people yell at you and they were mean and cruel and all those things. And you look back and it's like, okay, was that a, was that a happy day? Well, maybe not. But maybe you look back and it's like, yeah, at the same time, it was a blessed day. It changes your whole style of thinking. And again, it gives a certain kind of freedom. And that's why it's really important to do this, um, this type of prayer called the examine prayer, right? So where has God been um, throughout the course of my day, right? How has he been calling to new life? Did I recognize it? Or when did I simply see without seeing, hear without hearing? Did I correspond to those imitations? And based on that, what might I do going forward? There's one really good example of this. Um, this priest named Father Andrew Mattingly, I think his name is. A really easy version of the ex- uh, uh, examine prayer. It's called the three, two, one. So easy to remember. Okay. So the three, two, one. So the whole idea is that you look back in your, in your day. What are three things that I'm thankful for? What are three things that I'm thankful for? And secondly, what are two things that um, I, I could have done differently? Like two things I'm asking the Lord for forgiveness for. And then the, the last thing is, what's one thing I could do in terms of a resolution going forward? So three things I'm thankful for, two things I'm asking for forgiveness for, and then one resolution going forward. Now, rather looked at, at that as an abstract prayer exercise that I tack on to my already extending list of prayer cards or whatever, um, to situate it in terms of desire. Like the way to look at like religion, like religion at its best is all about becoming fully alive, right? So joy, happiness, peace, freedom, the whole nine yards, right? So if you look at the three, two, one in terms of like the invitation to participate more fully in God's blessed life, all, all of a sudden it takes a lot more color, right? So three things that I'm thankful for, like where has the Lord blessed me throughout the course of my day? And what you'll realize a lot of times, it, it, it's, it's not necessarily in, in the correspondence with the fulfillment of your pre-existing plans. There's something really beautiful about unexpected graces where um, here's something that I didn't anticipate. Here's something I didn't generate for myself. Here's something that even came in like weird packaging, you know? But at the same time, a blessing nonetheless. And again, did I, did I recognize that? Did I recognize this unexpected thing, which was a blessing despite my subjective experience of it in the moments? Second thing about like forgiveness, right? So again, the invitation to a new life. To get out of the mentality of like, oh, I'm a good person, therefore I don't need conversion. Like, like the Lord constantly is offering to us new life. And so how did I not correspond to that particular invitation? To go back to that much recent movie, you know, there's this little bit where um, even before she found the mysteries of charity, she made a vow, you know, and that her vow was like, I will never refuse God anything, you know? And just to kind of think about that, right? So in terms of the moral life, you know, the commandments, for example, is pretty clear stuff. Do this, don't do that, and so on and so forth, right? But she was saying, okay, beyond that, beyond my sheer duty and obligation before like the commandments and the moral life, like what is, what is the Lord calling me to do in terms of particular inspirations? And basically what I want to do is that I want to correspond to all those invitations to give out everything and refuse him nothing. And what comes through in that movie is that apparently like even deep into her ministry with the ministries of charity, like the Lord was still asking her, and this comes through her letters, uh, will you refuse me this? Will you refuse me that? And, you know, this party of them might kind of hear that, think, oh, come on, leave the poor girl alone. Like it's another Teresa, right? But it's one of these things, like, okay, like you clearly there's still, still more to give. There's still more to give. There's still opportunities to say yes, right? And when you look at Mother Teresa's life, right? Like this is the thing that's really captivating about her, right? Like it shows, it shows what is possible when you habitually always say yes to God. Like nothing, none in like Albania, you know, begins by like, you know, making sure that people can die with dignity, you know, with a roof over their head and, you know, being told that they're loved, right? And all of a sudden, Nobel Peace Prize and all of the issues of charity, changes the world, living saints, you know? And I was just like one person. And I was like, I don't know about you, but that, that's a, it's an exciting thing, but it also haunts my dreams. You know? Um, I remember um, a long time ago, I, I gave, a, I gave a, a Share Life talk when I was a senior, and, and I went out inside, I was talking to someone, and, um, and he was like, hey, you know, I think I was called to the priesthood once. I'm like, oh, really? What happened? It was an older guy, right? And he goes, I got married to her. He pointed to this gorgeous blonde. But uh, inwardly, I was like, fine, I, I sure hope you discern that properly. You know? 
I, like, I really hope that you took it to prayer and it was like, okay, Lord, like, are you calling me to this vocation as opposed to an application? And if you're calling me to a vocation of marriage, are you calling me to marry this girl as opposed to that girl? Because if you didn't do that with honesty and sincerity, like, the possibilities that were just passed up because, I don't know, you lack generosity, you lack bravery. Like, I don't know about you, that, that would always constantly haunt my dreams, you know? And that's why it's always a, a, you know, a bad thing or a bad question to kind of say like, well, if I, if I do this and that, like, okay, well, if I don't pursue this vocation from the Lord, we call the greatness, you know, will the Lord still love me and stuff? It's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to say shit up, but like, part of me kind of does, right? Um, just, again, look at Mother Teresa. Here's one person, like, I say yes to him, like, all the time. Doesn't that make you curious? Like, what if I said yes to God in all things? That's why it's, it's, um, it's really problematic to live on the surface, you know? To live on the surface of what people can kind of, like, see and comprehend. Because it's relatively easy to kind of, like, put on a certain good public face, especially when you have limited contact with people. And you can fool people who are thinking all sorts of things about you and your character and stuff. But like, you know, more importantly, God knows, you know? And again, it's not in the sense of like, oh, God's disappointed in me, but like, like, you know what's possible, even in theory, when you go all the way, if you give God everything, you hold back nothing. So there's that. Now, going back to the whole master state thing, right? So don't dismiss things because they seem insignificant, uh, insignificant, uh, patient endurance. But in the meantime, what do you do? Right? In the meantime, what do you do? Don't be distracted by seemingly larger seeds. Right? So again, here's like the mustard seed, the grain of a mustard seed blossoms into like, you know, nine or 12 feet, right? Don't be distracted by things which seem to have kind of larger immediate results. You know, so the example that comes to mind, um, Stephen Covey wrote the book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, one of the things he talks about in that book is like um, the distinction between the character ethic versus the personality ethic. The character ethic versus the personality ethic, right? And so the character ethic was something which was emphasized in self-help literature for years. I think extending to like the 1950s or something. And the character ethic is I become a good person. I become a person of good character. I become the, tr the good tree which inevitably produces good fruit. So I don't focus on the fruit, I focus on being a good tree, because a good tree can't help but produce good fruits, right? So that's the, that's the mentality and philosophy behind the character ethic. Because later on, though, things have shifted, you know? So now we're focused on, not so much the character ethic, but again, the personality ethic. And the personality ethic is, I want people to think that I'm a good tree, right? And again, the thing I want to impress upon you, friends, is that it's really easy to convince people that you're a good tree. Um, but again, it's a missed opportunity. So when you think about like succumbing to temptation for like, you know, the larger sea of the immediate results, um, that's, that's an easy thing, right? And so especially in moments where you're in the breach, you know, and you're living in that space of like doing the right things, even though they're hidden over a long period of time, suffering and endurance, there can be this temptation to be like, well, I I'm sick of that. I want to break out of that stance and do something where I feel affirmed by the world and it's immediate flashes sort of way. So, I'll post on social media or something, right? Um, but it's, it's just enough to take you out of that space. It's one of these things, you, you gotta be careful about this, right? Like I, I remember learning, talking to a friend of mine, this fellow seminarian, we're having, we're having dinner, right? And he goes, uh, he was like saying, Eric, you know, it's, it's like this, what's your heart like? Your heart is like, he's searching for the word or a symbol. And he's like, uh, it's like this, it's like a, it's like a thimble, right? And your heart was so easily be filled with stuff, such that you had nothing left for God. And you gotta be really, really careful about that. It's, 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 a, it's always a deadly thing when you think you have like time and energy to burn. You actually don't. You actually only have time to do the few things the Lord wants you to carefully well. And that's it. That is it, you know? And just think about how easy it is for us to, how easy is it for us to lose our sense of concentration or recollection? You know, it's like, how easy is it for us to get tired? So you only have a limited amount of time and energy. And so like, what is it the Lord wants me to do? Do I recognize that? And do I do those things carefully aloud? Okay. Another thing you want to do in terms of like, you know, pursuing this particular um, point of view, you want to kind of consecrate your energies in one direction. So it's a variation of like focusing on a few things the Lord wants you to do carefully aloud, right? 
So it's funny, like they say that to be a good confessor, you gotta be a good penitent. So I remember uh, once going to confession and talking to this priest. And he said that, it's funny, he said it almost in passing. It wasn't like the main lesson he wanted to give A to me, but it's funny how people say things in passing, but all of a sudden that sticks with you, you know? So one of the things he said was like, I don't know, you know, anything that you don't do for Christ, it's a total waste of your time. And then like, why are you doing it? And so it just stuck with me. It's like, huh, he's absolutely right. And it's not like I didn't know it before, but just, it's, you, you've been in situations like that, you, you hear something that you kind of know, knew before, but just the time and place you're at in terms of your spiritual journey and just the way it's put in that moment, it just pierces you to, to your heart. And that was a situation for me. Like, yeah, like anything I don't do for the Lord in terms of an act of love, it's a total waste of my time. Not even a, a slight waste of my time, it's a total waste of my time. You know, I, I think about, um, there's this book called uh, This is the Day the Lord is Made by Wilfred Stinnison. And it's a selection of his homilies. And the covers, you know, it's got flowers and stuff. It's like, it's almost like chicken soup for the soul, you know? And, uh, but really profound stuff in terms of that book. And, and early on, because it's categorized by like month and date, um, he talks about, so, I think he talks about haste, right? And he's talking about how like, um, it's really important to kind of settle into this rhythm that the Lord wants you to observe and chose your life. And occasionally you'd be pulled out on that. You know, sometimes there, there are crisis moments where like, okay, this is urgent and important, right? But you want to quickly get back into that particular rhythm. And then he goes on to say that, you know, it's funny, like we're really good at, at fishing all night and catching nothing. We're really good at that. We're really good at like squandering our limited time and energy on like nothing. Nothing of, of value, nothing of substance. We're like amazing at that, right? But the sweet spot is like, okay, fish on this side of the boat at this particular time, as a result of which you catch an abundance of fish, right? And there lies the discipline. There lies the discipline. I, I, I can't sit and tell often, um, you know, one of the pastoral practice, the situation will come up, you know, whether it's like a specific situation to deal with administration or like, you know, something to do with like overt manifestations of uh, evangelization. And here's this thing, it's just like, huh, the solution is, is not apparent to me. Like, so if it's a matter of like me kind of like, you know, just applying that my will and like concentrate more, um, yeah, but it's not like that, right? So all I'm as well do is like, okay, here's a situation. Honestly, I have no idea what to do. Oh, well, I'll just continue to live my healthy thing. The Lord will bring things to my attention. And uh, he does, right? But you got to realize, okay, the sweet spot is that. As opposed to like, I'll just do something busy and frantic so I can give myself the constellation that I'm doing something. And we've all been there before. It's a variation of like the psychological mind. So like, I, I feel better because at least I'm busy, at least I'm worried, right? And it's like, no, I'll save your energy. I mean, you want to fish at the appropriate time to the, at the Lord's command. The other thing that's very important too is like to realize that your journey is unique and specific to you. This is no small thing, right? So, you know, we hear all the time like, don't compare yourself to other people, but it is acutely true when it comes to spiritual life. Your vocation before the Lord is, is unique and specific to you as an individual. And you, I want to make sure you hear that correctly because we can receive that as a, an invitation to complacency, but it's not, it's not meant to be that, right? So the way I like to frame it to people is like, you know, we, we look around, there's people that we admire, right? So, you know, certain people are aligned, it's like maybe our mom or like, you know, whoever, right? And the thing is like, okay, like I admire this person so much that I want to be this person. And it seems to me there's a certain safety in that, right? So I'll just, I'll just like whatever that person does and I'll do what that person does, right? But you're actually called specifically to not do that and to trust in the work that God is doing in, in your heart. The whole idea, of course, why into God's particular uh, vocation for you is to recognize that his call is unique and specific to you. So you're called to be the saint in which God calls you to be a saint. Really, really important to know. Yeah, I'll give you an example. This is not quite on point, but um, still somewhat relevant. So I remember in my, in my first parish, I was talking to this young lady, and she came in and she was like, like so worried and, and scared and stuff. And, uh, and her voice is trembling and, and whatever. And we're talking and it's like, oh, what's up, right? It's like, oh, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about like this retreat I, I, I just came back from. I'm thinking about, 
what God, when I took eternity and salvation and my vocation and expectations of people and my community and my parents and whatever. And I feel like I'm called to be a nun, but I'm just like so scared by the whole thing and whatever. And I was like, oh, well, how old are you? And she's like 14 or something. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, I would just focus on being a little girl, right? And she's like, really? And you see her shoulders just kind of fall. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know? And it just sounds, it sounds stupid, right? But like, it, that's it, right? Um, there's, there's a process to be kind of observed here. You know, it, it's a funny thing. I, I, to give you a similar example, I remember talking to um, a guy who was about to become a, a pastor in the diocese. And he was kind of uh, asking for my advice, you know, because he knew I'd been pastor for a while. And uh, I was like, well, um, it's going to take a while to kind of find your own way in terms of like how God wants you to be a pastor, but uh, don't worry, it, it'll come. But in the meantime, just relax and don't worry. Don't be afraid of making mistakes and just, yeah, or trust and always fit work in you type thing. And um, it sounded like a lazy answer because like all the advice he was getting from other people was like, do this, do that, whatever. So like haste and immediacy and also the subtle thing of like, do what I do, right? But it's like, no, 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 no. Um, like the goal is not to help people become you. The goal is to help them become the persons that God's calling them to be. And, and by, just by virtue of the thing, like everyone is unique and specific and amazing in that, in that uniqueness. See, that's, that's the trust aspect, right? So when you look at some, for example, right? And like, okay, I'm trying to assist this person, whether it's like, you know, my friend or like my kid or like, you know, my pressure, you know, to help them like grow or whatever. It's like the, the primary step is like, do I, do I firmly believe in the seeds of greatness in this person's heart and the capacity of the Holy Spirit to, to bring it to, to fruition. And, and I have to be military, but like, I have no idea what that's going to look like in terms of like, you know, being in Stancia in terms of like this person's life. I have no idea, but I'm privileged to be part of this great adventure where like in this moment, some of the time we have, okay, what can I do to possibly help even a little bit, even though the Holy Spirit remains the great protagonist in this person's life, right? And that's the way to look at other people, but also, that's the way to look at ourselves, right? That's why it's so problematic whenever we're so, you know, reductive, limiting with regards to ourselves. Like, oh, I get the whole thing, oh, I'm a good person, or I'm this and that, whatever. But like, there's so much, like, you don't realize, we don't realize how great you can actually become. Like, it's crazy, you know? Mother Teresa, I know I keep coming back to her, right? But like, you get the sense talking to Mother Teresa that she's not like, She's not like plotting or planning or strategizing, you know? It's not like, okay, I'm gonna do this thing and it's gonna move this person's heart in this way. She's just like, okay, I love Jesus and I just give myself entirely to him where right? I just walk around and be around people and just say what I think. Like that's, that's actually what she does. And people are like, this is incredible. Because right? that's actually how you're supposed to live. It's not supposed to be this weird self-conscious thing where I'm like planning and plotting. It's like, no, like I focus on being the person that God is calling to be. And, and the fruit will take care of itself, right? You know, going back to the whole thing with the example of my priest friend who became the pastor, you know, it's a weird thing I was thinking about in the aftermath of it. And the thing I wanted to say to him in retrospect, it's kind of one of those things like, oh, I should have said this, right? In order to become a good priest, for example, you gotta be content to be like a bad priest initially. <laughs> and again, don't take that the wrong way, right? But just this idea of like, okay, if I want to learn how to like become this like, you know, Olympic sprinter. I've learned first of all how to like jog and then before that walk, before that like crawl, before kind of like, you know, all, all the different things, right? So you, you can't skip steps. In a weird sort of way, if I ever try to escape from just being me in this stage of the spiritual journey, you know, we're kind of like that little girl who was 14. Like who knows, maybe she will become a nun, I don't know, right? But what I did know was that at that moment, she's called to just focus on being a 14 year old little girl, right? So same thing with us, right? Um, the example that comes to mind to further illustrate that point, one of my favorite parables is the uh, parable of the two sons. It's like really short and pithy. So people think it's like, you know, takeaway message is pretty obvious and rudimentary, but it's not, right? So, you know, this guy has two sons, you know, he calls them to work in the vineyard. One guy says yes, the other guy says no. And the guy who says yes doesn't count, and the guy says no, but she comes back. Gospel for the Lord. <laughs> That's the end of the story, you know? And so you think about it, it's like, huh, what's that all about, right? And it's this thing, right? So basically, okay, the master is um, the Lord, obviously. 
The vineyard is the world. And the work is the work of salvation. Now, how's the work of salvation brought about? Um, certainly in a broad sense, through the correspondence of my will to the will of the Father. But in a very particular sense, it's through the narrow way of the cross. And so that's the reason why the Father goes to his sons one at a time personally. Because back in the day, it wouldn't be like that. Back in the day, it'd be like, I send a delegate because I'm rich and I'm powerful. And it's not a request, it's a command. Do this thing where you're out of the will, right? But instead, this guy goes to them each at a time personally because what he's asking of them is, is super intimate. It's like, it's like part of my mission, part of my being, right? But also it requires total buy-in, right? Because what I'm asking is, will you share in this mission of suffering and dying for salvation of the world, right? Now, the guy says yes initially. It's, if you look at the initial translation, it's, uh, it's a very quick and superficial yes. I always think about like the powers of Penzance. So, like, my captain, my captain. And it's like, are you, did you hear what I said, son? Like, I don't think he quite took it in what, what I'm saying to you, right? And the reason why the second guy initially says no is because he gets it, right? Like, I understand what the father has asked me to do, and yes, for a good cause. Again, it's for a good cause, but at the same time, the healing part of me is not chopping at the bit to suffer and die for anything, right? And so I go away. But then, because I have a certain comfort level and trust in my relationship with the Father, I can be honest with them in terms of saying to him, I feel like saying no, and I do say no. But at the same time, when I examine my heart with time and distance, I realize in retrospect that despite my initial reticence to suffer and die for anything, my love of my father is greater than that. And the father knows that he knows that the son has it within them. As we all do. See, that's the thing. As we all do, right? And so the father gives him the time and space to realize that. And let that be a great consolation for each one of us. Right? So it's one of these things. Like, you, you hear about it, and like, in terms of the allure of sin and, like, you know, suffering and death and all these different things, right? That's why there's nothing to be afraid of, Right? You can go before your father in heaven and say like, you know, I, I don't like suffering. I don't like death. I'm afraid of this that, and the other thing. And just be like raw and brutally honest. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. Just like I know in Esther, the parable of two sons, right? But son, if you examine your heart, you'll realize that you want something more, you know? So deeper than my, my fear of suffering is my willingness and desire to correspond to the call of greatness and to be with my beloved in the sense of like being as well as mission. And again, that's true for each one of us, but it's a variation of what we talked about earlier, right? So it's like, you know, spiritual maturity, it's like you, you have to make that realization on your own. It's not been like really a decision, it kind of is, but like in the sense of like, it's already true, but you gotta discover it, right? I go through like, you know, the honesty and like the brutal kind of like, well, you know, Lord, what about this, that, and the other thing, that's fine. That's, that's part of it, right? It's part of like growing up, like, you know, working towards becoming an Olympic sprinter, right? But when you go through that, like don't, you, you'll never end up, for example, thinking like, and I just realized that my deep desire is to say no to Christ. You'll never, you won't, you won't, you won't do that. Like you won't. Like, so that's why you don't need to be afraid of like hashing through the mess, right? And, but the thing is, if you, if you have the wherewithal, the courage in the stomach, to hash in the mess, that it comes to the point where like, oh my gosh, I realize I do love the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're unshakable, right? Um, it's no longer like because of immediate reward or because of the world's affirmation or whatever. But like I said, no, I've, I've discovered through myself, through my own introspection and intimate prayer with Jesus Christ, that this is where my heart's at. And that's there for you, right? Like, like there's no, no one can do that for you. You have to go through that inner journey yourself. And it's painful. It's painful. Uh, perhaps because I've done it before. But it's, uh, it's, uh, there's, no, there's no skipping that step. I'll, I'll give you an, an analogy by way of my own life. You know? So like when I was on internship, um, my internship, internship pastor, um, his room was across from my room. And our, do our doors were both open. You know? So I could see him, he could see me. And recurrently would do this thing where like, um, he'll look over and be like, hey, you know, um, something's bothering you. Something's bothering you. We should talk. And I'm like, nothing's bothering me. I don't want to talk. <laughs> right? And it wasn't even like I'm hiding things from him. It was like, I don't know. Like I just, you know, in retrospect, I was burying things because, you know, sometimes you go through life and you're so used to people not listening and not caring. And you're just trying to live for the weekend or whatever. 
that there's parts of your heart which kind of like die and like you forget about your hopes and dreams and stuff and do people even care so like how you doing i'm fine because i can't hope for anymore anyways so this is going on and so he would he would say like no no we should talk okay fine and so we'll sit there you know across from each other and he's like yeah so what's in your mind like i don't know is something bothering you i get to go one thing that's <laughs> And he'll press. And he'll press. And then finally, after, after digging, I'll be like, oh my gosh. Yeah, well, there is something, right? Then he'll dig a little more, and it's like, oh, that's not just a little something, that's a huge something. And before I know it, I'll be like bawling. And um, I was bringing up all these things in terms of like, you know, why I don't like myself, why I don't think I should be a priest, and all my fears, the apprehensions, or whatever, right? And because they were like raw and real and stuff, and we're having this conversation, like, it is no time for falsehood. And so, so it's not just, oh, just read chapter 25 of this book and things will be fine. And it's like, if, if, if I'm bringing out this stuff and we're really talking about it, then I want to talk about it. I'm not going to walk away for some like empty platitude. Like, forget that. The time for falsehood is over. <laughs> and what would happen? We'd talk about these things. And at the end, it'd be like, after like all that effort and literally like tears and like <laughs> stuff, at the end, it'd be like, okay, I, I feel, I feel hopeful to like, like that's enough for tonight and until tomorrow. And we did that like all year. But I think what to suggest to you, friends, is that, again, that's, that's a step that you can't skip, which is why it, it's problematic, okay? Like, like, luckily, I was able to, to have that particular relationship to work through different things and obviously presume like trust and love and commitment and always, you know, whatever, right? Which is why, for example, in terms of Christian community, this is something I'm trying to teach our own parish like, in different ways. Like, that's what we need. It's a variation of, like, God's love being manifested incarnationally. God could give us grace in an fashion, but typically what he does is that he gives us grace, he obeys his love through people, through the church, through Christianity. But we need to have um, the mutual stomach for that type of interaction where I, I take a chance and be vulnerable and then if I'm the recipient, to not be like surprised or scandalized by that, but be, to have the, the willingness to journey with other people because I've had the stomach to make that journey myself. And that's why, for example, like, you know, I, I could be in situations where I'm talking to people like in the office, for example, and they rig up all these things. And literally in my mind, I'm like, shoot, I have no idea. <laughs> no, I have no idea like, like what to, you know, how this is going to play out. But I do have confidence that things are going to work out, you know? because I've been there before, right? It's, it's the fruit of, of having not skipped that step in terms of facing the per personal darkness and realizing how Christ's light shines through that and, and nothing can separate from the love of Christ. So really important. Okay. Now, the parable of the, uh, of the leaven uh, is uh, kind of interesting. It kind of ties hand in hand with the mustard seed situation. So the idea of, again, something starting small and flourishing over time, right? So the thing with leaven, right, is that um, it's the leaven that's mixed into three measures of flour. And so a measure was basically um, 15 liters, so three times 15, right? And the key thing there is that the woman um, hides the leaven deep into the flour. So it's not just like the put, I like, I hide it deep within. So the primacy again of the hidden life. So, you know, the church fathers are really big about this in terms of like, okay, this represents this and this represents that. So just to make it easy, right? So the woman represents what? The woman represents the church, right? And what's the flower? And the flower is us. And what's the leaven? The leaven is Christ, right? So what's the principle of growth? The principle of growth, it, growth is Christ within us. And the idea is that the church wants that to be planted deep. So deep roots, obviously, but also, I um, mean, this idea of, um, you know, over a long period of time, that, that principle of growth comes to fruition, right? I, I remember, like, years ago, doing a funeral, and someone gave a eulogy, and in retrospect, um, I don't know, I guess she didn't really have a well-developed understanding of her faith. I don't think she was even fast in her faith. And she made this comment where it was like, um, you know, I think about my mother, you know, and I think about the meaning of life. Meaning of life is what people remember about you when you die. And I thought, oh no, that's not true, you know? And you need to think about that, that's pretty sad. I know people were like, they're like, oh, it's so moving. It's like, is it? Is it moving? I think it's pretty depressing, actually. But even just think about it. I, I think what's seen Jose Maria Escrito, he's like, you know, you wait like how many generations? Like one generation, two generations? 
maybe three, and they forget, right? And that's all my life is. Like, why, I'm, I'm simply a memory in like the minds of my loved ones. That's the meaning of my life. That's crazy, right? Um, rather than this idea that, okay, um, every moment has meaning. Every moment has as meaning in terms of the potential to do something great, which is locked for all eternity, which reverberates throughout time. I think about some, uh, the parable of the, the Ten Virgins, one of my favorite parables in the entire gospel, right? Ten virgins, five are foolish and five are wise. And they're all out to, you know, meet the bridegroom. And they all have lamps, right? And the five foolish have a little bit of oil in their lamps. Five wise have plenty of oil. And then they're waiting, and the oil is burning down. Five foolish are like, oh my goodness, our oil is running out. Please, wise virgins, give us some of your oil. And the wise will say, no, get your, get your own oil. And so then they leave. They go back to the marketplace. In the meantime, surprise, surprise, the bridegroom comes. And then they all go in, they shut the door, and then the, the foolish come back, and please, please let us in. I never knew you. Goodbye. Cost of the Lord. And you're like, whoa, that's ours, you know? So it's one of these things, right? Um, all the parables are provocative, and they're intentionally meant to be so. So if you're reading the parables honestly, there's meant to be this point where part of you the parable and you're like, hey, that seems weird, that seems strange, or that seems crazy. If you don't perceive that tension in its test, then you're not reading the thing honestly. But if you give up at that point, it's because you lack faith. So you gotta have both. You gotta have faith and commitment, but also like reading the thing honestly. That's why it's kind of interesting. Like, I don't know, like it's, it's one of these things, right? I think with, when, you, when, people, when people read the gospel, I think out of a misguided sense of trying to be overly reverent, there's a sense that, okay, I don't, uh, don't give like honest response in terms of like what I actually think with regards to this particular text, but it's really important to kind of bring that to the table. Lord, this seems weird, or I'm, I'm afraid of suffering, I'm afraid of death, so I want to back away, but I bring that to the table because you want the real me as opposed to the fake me, even though it's, it's, it's couched in terms of the ideal me. Okay. Now, we look at that parable, the parable of the Ten Towns. Um, a lot of people confuse it in terms of, like, view from the perspective of charity. So if you look at it from the perspective of charity, it seems crazy, right? It's like, please, please, give us a real. It's like, no. It's like, what? Why don't you just be Christian, right? So there's this thing, right? There's something about the oil which makes it that I can't give it to you if I want to. There's something about the oil where even if I want to, I can't give it to you. And what is it? A simple way to look at it is that the oil represents my friendship with the Lord. The oil represents my friendship with the Lord. And the idea is that I can't give you my friendship with the Lord. It's the fruit of, of what you make of it. It's a pretty good way to remember the moral story of the gospel, that particular parable, but it's not entirely accurate, right? So you can take it one step further. Like it's accurate, but there's a little, there's a little more richness to it, right? So another way to look at the oil is that the oil is, is the fruits of any decision I make in this life to choose Christ. So, okay, here's this moment, right? And like the primacy of love. What am I judged for at the end of my life? You know, the sheep and the goats, right? Not how clever I am, not what stuff I have, but the quality of my love, right? Did I choose Christ? That I choose love. And if I choose love, and this role becomes this beautifully combustible material which can be consumed by the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify my life and the world. That's the power of this moment if I choose appropriately or I could pass it by, right? And the idea is that, okay, you look at that parable, this is the tragedy, right? The five foolish, they have some oil. They have some oil. So it's not like they're completely you know, like, what the heck is love, right? They, they have some intuition of what it means to love. They just don't realize like how much oil is actually required for the jury. And it's not this abstract thing. It's not like, oh, I didn't know the Lord chose like this fixed amount or something like that, right? It's like, what is the Lord demanding of us? The gift of ourselves, the gift of ourselves. So that's the idea. Like every moment is pregnant with meaning. And what matters is that I choose Christ, I choose love in this moment. And if, if I do that, again, the power contained in that moment explodes, sanctifies me, has potential to sanctify the world. And so I choose that, like, over and over again. And that's why I hate that whole thing of, like, okay, what's, what's like the bell? Being remembered by your peers, right? Because you think about it, like, in terms of, like, what people see of us, 
What will they affirm and reflect back or of that affirmation? It's very minimal, you know? We think about every moment counting and having that, that capacity for meaning and power. Most of the opportunities that we have to love Christ are, they're not seen by the world. They're not seen by other people. And that's why you can have a thing where like, you know, here's this person, they actually, they seem ordinary. It seems like they're, they weren't up to much and they're not actually that impressive. We're actually, we were a personal tremendous love because in ways that you didn't fully appreciate, they always chose Christ. And so it goes with us, right? Yeah, but if we get distracted by like what the world finds to be important and valuable, we could forget about the primacy of like this moment above all other moments. Yeah, in terms of like um, the how, right? So um, in terms of the leaven, you know, so again, the, the woman puts the leaven inside the flower and it grows and whatnot. But we're not told exactly how it grows, which is kind of interesting, right? And so even though it sounds weird, it's like, it's a variation of like focus on what the Lord wants you to do carefully well. And a lot of times when it comes to um, how we grow and how we develop, it's not really a matter of like intellectual mastery or comprehension. And that's really, really important. It's funny how the mind works, right? It's, it's a variation of like, I idolize my psychological annoyance, right? So um, I, I feel secure insofar as I feel like I have a complete understanding, intellectually speaking, of my situation and my future and my past. And it's like, good luck, right? Or is actually that's not a requirement. So part of like my deep trust in the Lord, you know, it's this idea of like, okay, a lot of things are like, no idea, you know? Not just like in the world, but even within oneself, right? Like, you know, if you, if you imagine yourself living your life, like, okay, I'm in this moment of confusion and pain, and how is that gonna add up to my sanctification? I just know that the Lord isn't calling me to leave this thing because he's not calling me to go from this to that. So I'm called to, to be here and see a pain and confusion. What's up with that? And again, the temptation is just to run from that because it's confusing and it's painful, right? But you gotta stay in the breach. Like I think about the, um, the calling of uh, St. Peter in that really famous story, right? So, you know, St. Peter, obviously he's, uh, you know, he's um, washing his nets. He's, a fish, he's fishing a light, he's caught nothing. He's washing his nets. And so I begin the story, I begin the story tired and fatigued and feeling like a failure. <laughs> and the Lord comes. And he wants to preach from my boats, you know? So he gets into Peter's boat, pushed away from the shore, gets better sight lines. You can see the crowd that's pressing in. Uh, yeah, I can see them, they can see me. And Peter, like, you know, he wants to tell Jesus to get lost, but he can't because the crowd's watching. They think Jesus is amazing. So I don't want to look like a jerk. So it's like, yeah, Rabbi, you can use my boat. I love it, you know? And so he gets in his boat. He's a long sermon. The gospel doesn't say he gives a long sermon, but you know he gives a long sermon, right? It's funny, I'll, I'll raise a story with the kids in the schools. And we're like, you think kids, he gives a short sermon or a long sermon? And they be like, long sermon, why? Because he's Jesus. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. No, I, I think he gives a long sermon because uh, it was a big crowd. It was a big crowd, right? And so imagine, like, you know, you, you go to, like, a big crowd comes, it's like a solo concert, and then like the person singing sings like one song, it's like alien, and they're like, have a good night. It's like, what? <laughs> to grow up. So he gives a long sermon, right? And at the end of this long sermon, he goes, oh, let's go fishing. And Peter's like, uh, he, again, he wants to t tell him to get lost, but he doesn't because of the crowd. He's fishing and caught nothing, and yet he does it, right? Because again, on the crowd, but he catches this huge amount of fish. Now here's the thing, right? At the end of this story, okay, he catches this huge amount of fish, he realizes he's in, he's in the presence of the vanity. Um, and so, okay, depart from me, Lord, from a sinful man. Don't be afraid from now on, you'll be fishers of men. And so he drops everything and follows Christ toward, right? Now, here's the thing. Um, it's funny, I'll do this for the kids. Like, imagine it's the same story, except there's no Jesus and there's no crowd. So Peter's fishing and he catches fish. It's more fish he's ever caught in his entire life. What would Peter typically do with all that fish? And some kids are like, he would give it to the poor. And it's like, no. He would eat some and then sell the rest. And go home and say like, wow, that was an awesome day. And a rich, right? And so here's this thing. He walks away for all, more fish he's ever caught in his entire life. So I walk, I walk away from the thing which previously gave my life a sense of value and meaning. I walk away from that. And here's the thing. This is the point, right? How did that come about? How did it come about? It wasn't because he had a certain intellectual mastery of a situation. 
It wasn't like he read a book and was like, oh, no, I know the value of detachment. And I realized Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. It wasn't that. He began to sort of stress out and tired and feel like a failure. He ran to the Lord. What did the Lord do? Oh, here, lie down. You've had a rough day. No, no. <laughs> Go and get your boat without permission. You're going to be annoyed. I know that too. And you're going to sit through my long sermon. And at the end, I'm going to ask you to fish. Even though I know you fished all night and caught nothing. Okay. And so I'm more stressed out. I'm more like confused. I'm irritated or whatever. But somehow the Lord is using all that stuff to change my hearts. And that's why it's important. You look at that particular gospel, right? It's not about what people think, you know? So people look at that and they're like, oh, that's a historical narrative. It's about one day Jesus Christ, he wanted to get followers, and he called Peter as the first disciple. Like, there is that, right? But it's a really important lesson for us to keep in mind going forward, right? Because the idea is that, okay, when I find myself in situations which are confusing and stressful and painful, and I have no idea what's going on, I turn to the Lord, he makes my life harder as opposed to easier, I gotta remember this gospel. I gotta remember this gospel. Like, the Lord is not calling me to go from like this to that, to not rationalize my plight and say, well, the Lord is a woman suffer, so it's gonna leave just because it's painful. You gotta ground everything in God's call and then trust it. Okay, even though I don't understand it, the Lord is using this circumstance to, have to make me holy and to change the world. Now, um, in terms of like the treasure in the field, right? Um, there's, there's two things actually, the treasure in the field and pearl of right price. So I'll do these to do things in tandem, right? So in terms of the treasure and the pearl, right? So they're both, um, they're both hidden. They're both hidden, right? So the idea here is that, okay, if something is hidden, it's meant to be found. Like it's hidden by someone, it's meant to be found by someone. And the idea is that we're not really told how these things are found. We're just told that they are found. So previously hidden, but then subsequently found. So what is required of the person to find the hidden treasure. They have to have a belief that there is a hidden treasure. They have to have persistence and they have to have deep desires and act on those deep desires. I mentioned early on about how we don't like to think that we're hedonists, but in reality we actually are. Right. And so on what happens is like we're living for the weekend. And this happens a lot, especially with young people. It's kind of sad. I'm going to have to address this in an intentional sort of way, but like, um, a lot of times with, with young people, it's like, I feel this existential angst. It wasn't a frame in this way, but this is kind of what's happening, right? I feel this existential angst where like, I don't find meaning in my life. I want to be happy, but I'm not happy. I don't know how to get there. And so I just distract myself with stuff, social media, binge watching, um, whatever, right? And then I get to the weekend, I do something which distracts me even more in a really intensified sort of way. And catch my breath and the rinse repeat, you know? Whereas actually what you're supposed to do is live with deep desire. Like when I make this choice in this moment in time, right? When I look back on that choice, maybe I, maybe I don't recognize it in the moment, but that's the reason why life is long, right? When I make this choice in the moment, when I look back now and I do the constant exam, is that a choice which led me to be more fully alive? Did it correspond to the deep longings in my heart? mindful of the fact that my deep desires also correspond with God's desires for me. And the idea is that, okay, I, I need to make all my choices in that regard. And that way, like life becomes exciting and meaningful as this beautiful collaboration between God and myself, you know, especially knowing that God wants me to be fully alive and happy at all those things, right? Now, one example of that is like the Magi, you know, I know we're fully out of Christmas, but indulge me, right? So, um, the Magi, the three kings, right? Pope Benedict talks about this. He says, uh, you know, a lot of people, I mean, you don't even need his commentary, you know this. A lot of people would have, would have seen the star of Bethlehem in the sky. A lot of people would have seen it because it was big and it was bright. And most people would have said like, hey, that's kind of bright. You'll see it every day. And then go back to eating their TV dinner, right? Like no change, right? But the Magi are like, huh, there's something kind of interesting about that. And we feel a certain tug in our heartstrings that we should go follow that star. And again, the same thing with this parable with the, with the treasure and the pearl, like, I don't know where it's gonna lead. And I don't know exactly what I'm looking for, but I know that what I'm, where I'm at right now, this isn't quite in. So I'm gonna follow that desire in my heart for something more, something to which I can give my life to, um, with the hope and a conviction that that thing actually does exist. 
And so again, you go back to the parable of the, of the treasure and the pearl. And the common denominator of both those is that they discover a thing and there's great joy, right? And there's great joy which precedes this act of selling and buying. And I want you to see something really kind of special about it, right? So the joy comes from this fact that like, okay, before I loved many things, had a variety of interests, but now I find the one thing, the one true love, and in that I find integrity, in that I find peace. It's the whole thing with um, the rich young man, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And basically, it's a question of joy. You know, so just to break down that story, it's like, okay, I, I visit the temple, I pray, I call my mom, I, I'm trying to be a good guy. You know, I follow the commandments as my youth, but I'm still unhappy, what do I lack? And everyone remembers the whole thing about selling out, I'm like, you know, giving the money to the poor and following Christ, and people are like, oh, I, I need money. <laughs> but to look at what that story represents, right? You can't fully possess the treasure which is Christ unless you sell out. So even go back to like the parable of the treasure, right? Like I could steal it, but somehow the guy intuits correctly that I need to rightfully possess the land in terms of deed and title ownership, and then properly receive this thing. And it's just a matter of spiritual physics, right? In order for my heart to be filled with Christ, I need to turn back, turn my back to everything which is not of the Lord. And it's a funny thing. It's not that, you know, when I do this, like all of a sudden I'm like, it's just like, like Christ in like the ether. <laughs> it's like once Christ is first in my life, then everything is in its proper place, you know. I remember uh, Father John Ricardo, he had a really good way to illustrate this. He goes, if I meet someone who, who puts Christ for real, first in all things, we could talk about anything. We could talk about football for hours, and it's like totally fine because there's a sense of rightness. And so even in a conversation about football, there's a sense of proper order. He goes, whereas if I talk to someone and Christ is not first in their life, when they talk about football for five minutes, it's colossal glory. You know, I never hear that thinking like, huh, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. When you put Christ in first in all things, it just, everything is, it goes in its proper order. Everything becomes that more amazing and then we're beautiful. Well, one thing with regards to the pearl, right? So you notice that the guy who uh, gets the pearl, right? So he's a merchant of flying pearls. He has a bunch of pearls. He discovers a pearl of, of, of infinite value. And he sells all his pearls to get the one pearl. And you might think to yourself, well, gosh, that doesn't make any sense. The more prudent business investment would be to like sell most of your pearls to get the one pearl, but keep some of your pearls just in case this one pearl thing doesn't work out. But if you read through the lines, the idea is that, okay, once I sell all my pearls to get this one pearl, I'm done with the business of buying and selling pearls. Because at the end of the day, it wasn't about that. I, I was ultimately leading or searching for, for something in which my heart could fully rest. And so I find the one pearl, and so now I'm no longer in, in, in the business of commerce. I'm in the business of, of contemplation. And so I, and I spend the rest of my life enjoying being in the presence of this one pearl that is your way of life for it.